Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Wilma Mankiller's time as Principal Chief was a pivotal period for the Cherokee Nation. She is famously the nation's first female Principal Chief. She signed what was then a pioneering agreement giving the nation control over millions of dollars in federal funds. That agreement continues to benefit the Cherokee Nation and many other tribes. As Mankiller is honored with an image on the quarter, we'll take a moment to remember her accomplishments. We're back right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Megan Kamrick in for Antonio Gonzalez. The National Park Service is renaming one of Yellowstone National Park's largest mountains to honor Native Americans. Parks officials say the original name is an affront to indigenous people. The new name reflects recommendations from the Rocky Mountain Tribal Council. Taylor Stagner from Yellowstone Public Radio reports. Yellowstone National Park changed Mount Doan's name to First Peoples Mountain. The mountain is located to the east of Yellowstone Lake, and settlers named the mountain after Gustave Doan, who has been cited as instrumental in the conquest of the area. According to a Yellowstone National Park press release, Doan led an attack in 1870 against a band of Pegan Blackfeet and killed 173 indigenous people, including elders and children suffering from smallpox. The event is called Maria's Massacre, and Doan boasted about that attack for the rest of his life. Tribes have been calling for the renaming of the mountain for many years. Two years after the massacre, Yellowstone was named the first national park. For National Native News, I'm Taylor Stagner. Members of a Native American Methodist church in Oklahoma said the congregation has been targeted numerous times by intruders who inflicted thousands of dollars of damages. KCCO-TV reports officials with the church, located in Norman, thought the suspects were looking for money. Instead, they left $10,000 worth of damages and stole candy and chips and drove a butcher knife into a table. Reverend Justine Wilson said she thinks that was a message, and many parishioners don't feel comfortable coming back to the church until the suspects were caught. The church had been raising money for a new sanctuary, but that will now go towards repairing the damage. Authorities in Brazil on Tuesday said they arrested a second man in connection with the disappearance of an indigenous expert and a British journalist. The New York Times reports officials were shifting from a search and rescue operation to a homicide investigation. Police say they arrested the brother of a fisherman who was detained last week. Journalist Dom Phillips was reporting on patrol teams that indigenous advocate Bruno Pereira helped create to tackle illegal hunting and fishing in the area, work that led to threats against Pereira. Reuters report the two were in a remote area that has the world's largest number of uncontacted indigenous people and has become a center for drug smugglers, illegal logging and mining. A Senate committee later this week will hold a listening session called Cannabis in Indian Country. Marijuana Moment reports the Senate Indian Affairs Committee will meet on June 17th. Chairman Brian Schatz, a Democrat from Hawaii, said it's an opportunity for tribes to offer feedback to Senate staffers on cannabis issues. In March, nine senators sent a letter to U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland urging him to direct federal prosecutors to not interfere with tribes that pursue cannabis legalization policies. The Department of Justice used to follow a guidance from the Obama administration that embodied 
need that kind of prosecutorial discretion. But that was rescinded by former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, along with another memo that sought to curtail prosecutions in states with legal cannabis markets. The senators are urging Garland to reinstate that prosecutorial discretion. And a former tribal vice chairman and tribal council speaker for the Navajo Nation has died. The Farmington Daily Times reports Edward T. Begay died on June 12th. He was 87. Begay helped secure the first gaming compact with the state of New Mexico. He also led a delegation to the United Nations to advocate for the recognition of the human rights of the Navajo people. Navajo Council member Amber Kanazba Crotty said, quote, Many of us are here because we were able to hear his words in fighting for our people and making decisions that are in the best interest. For National Native News, I'm Megan Kamrick. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The Indian Loan Guarantee and Insurance Program has worked with lenders for almost 50 years, supporting them as they support you. Have an idea to improve your tribal economy? Information at bia.gov DCI, which supports this show. Support by the Facundo Valdez School of Social Work at Highlands University, whose culturally relevant clinical online MSW degree is available without leaving your community. Application can be made in three steps at online.nmhu.edu. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Wilma Mankiller is getting recognition from the U.S. Mint with the release of her image on the U.S. Quarter. Coinciding with the Quarter unveiling is the release of a collection of poetry by the late Cherokee leader that has never been published. Mankiller is remembered as the first female principal chief of the Cherokee Nation. Some of her many accomplishments throughout her life include bringing running water to a small Oklahoma town, vastly expanding the tribe's health care access, and increasing tribal revenue and enrollment. She was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1998. Her work with the tribe continued after the end of her term until her death in 2010. Today we're going to talk about the legacy of Wilma Mankiller, and we invite you to join our conversation. 1-800-996-2848 is the number to call to share your thoughts. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. First up on our show today is the Principal Chief of the Cherokee Nation, Chuck Hoskin, Jr. He's speaking with us from the nation's capital in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Chief Hoskin, always a privilege to have you on the show. Welcome back. Well, very good to be with you, and uh, what, a, what a great topic and what a great leader uh, Chief Mankiller was. Certainly, Chief. And uh, the Wilma Mankiller Commemorative Quarter, have you pre-ordered any collector roles yet? I've got some roles. We had a great event in Tahlequah, and uh, the first roles were uh, uh, were issued or for purchase. And uh, my daughter, uh, I, I had the opportunity to purchase the first one, but I thought, you know, Wilma would probably prefer my daughter do it. So I, <laughs> I had my daughter Jasmine do it. It was a great moment for me as a as a dad. I think that's a smart 
move, Chief. And I'll tell you what, those quarters are a hot commodity. I checked the U.S. Mint's website this morning, and all the 40 corn rolls, 100 coin bags, Philadelphia, Denver, all the mints, everything's on back order. So I'm, I'm glad you folks got those got those rolls early on. Chief, how does it make you feel to know that there is so much interest and demand for a coin that honors the legacy of the first female principal chief of your people? Well, it makes me feel proud as a Cherokee citizen, knowing that our, our great chief, who is really a great icon, um, is being honored in this way. Um, I, I hope it says something about where we are as a country, uh, that in the 21st century, in 2022, the country is looking uh, throughout history uh, for uh, heroes that don't fit the mold that uh, I think we typically have seen uh, the, the nation revere or place on a pedestal. And I think it's good for the country good for young people in the country in particular to see Wilma Mankiller on this quarter, and I hope it sparks some uh, discussion about who she was. And I'll tell you, who she was was just a, a great leader. Um, I, I, I said this in some remarks the other day at our, our event. Uh, the truth of the matter is every Cherokee chief that has come after Wilma Mankiller, including me, wants to be like Wilma Mankiller. It keeps us moving. It keeps us motivated. And when we all fall short, uh, but we sure, we sure keep trying. And that, uh, that, I think, shows that she's still having an impact. Yeah, I think it does too. And it seems like whose legacy only continues to grow as the years pass. Is it even possible to understate her significance as a tribal leader? Yeah, I think uh, to, to, to talk about her uh, is to is to understate it because her uh, leadership keeps growing. Uh, and in fact, I think the fact that she is uh, uh, her image has been struck on the quarter uh, means that she continues to have this impact. I mean, think about what Cherokee Nation is doing today. We're building on the work that she did. I mean, so when we're making strides in health care, when we're uh, renewing self-governance agreements or, or entering in new ones, as we did recently with the Department of Transportation, it all builds on the work that she did. And so uh, she's just having such a great impact. I think about a generation of young leaders that are coming up that were inspired by her, myself included. And I think, gosh, she still has that impact. So it's growing. It's evolving. We're learning more about her. I mean, I was excited to learn about the, the, the poetry that she uh, created and is now going to be published. I mean, she still continues to make this impact on, on so much of the world. And Chief, did you know Wilma Mankiller personally? I did not. I met her one time as a, as a, as a teenager. My father was uh, running for the council of the Cherokee Nation. He got elected in 1995, which was the year she uh, left office, and I uh, got to meet her that one time. And so for me, and I think a, a lot of uh, Cherokees of, of my generation, she's somebody we grew up learning about uh, and uh, thinking, this is somebody who's so revered, who's made such an impact. She's a, a fierce a person in, in the greatest sense of that term uh, in terms of doing something for her people. And so uh, I think, you know, we all look back at what she did and we say, we want to be like that. And I think that's great. I think about uh, young Cherokees today still viewing things that way, still learning about her. I think about my daughter. I think about a lot of, uh, you know, girls in particular who think about what can I be in this world? Well, they can look at Wilma Mankiller and realize that they can make just the most significant impact on their world and their people. So I didn't know her, uh, but, uh, you know, she's somebody that I uh, enjoy learning about. Well, Chief, 
we just can't understate uh, her significance and her leadership amongst women. And, and you know, we hear all the time, Wilma Mankiller, first female principal chief of Cherokee Nation. But one thing we need to remember, and correct me if I'm wrong, but she's also the only female principal chief of Cherokee Nation, even now more than 25 years after she last held that position. Why do you think that is? You know, I don't know why that is. I think it's it's certainly uh, certainly something we're going to see in the future. Um, I think what is really important is that as a tribe, as an Indian nation, and and, and as a business, we have a significant business presence. That we uh, that we really be the model employer and the model government in terms of making sure uh, women have uh, a chance to succeed. And I think that's that's what's most significant is developing this pool of of leaders who can be uh, chiefs in the future, council members in the future, or run departments. So part of what we're doing is, uh, for example, we're looking at uh, our pay structure at the Cherokee Nation. We're making sure we knock out any pay disparities between men and women, because we know in this country there are those disparities. You know, my cabinet, half of my cabinet uh, are women. Uh, and they're very strong women, and I suspect all of them were inspired by Wilma Mankiller. So we haven't had another female chief. I don't doubt we will in the future, but we've got a lot of great female leaders that are really standing on the shoulders of Wilma Mankiller. And I think that she uh, knows that where, where she is, and she uh, she looks uh, looks upon us uh, with some pride that there's so many um, uh, women that are, are leading, whether it's on our council or in our executive departments. Uh, but I know there'll be another uh, uh, female chief someday, and it may be one of those little girls out there that have that Wilma Mankiller quarter and are asking their mother, who, who is this lady? And then it opens up this great big world to them. Yeah, it might be. Wilma Mankiller was one of those pivotal leaders that really helped forge the way in terms of what I think we we think of as contemporary tribal governance, you know, self-determination, contracted services, the balance of social programs and economic development, cultural revitalization. Her era was also a very important time for tribal leaders. Can you talk about that? You know, it was because it was a time, uh, you know, just coming on the heels of the 1970s where, when there were significant federal reforms that allowed tribes like the Cherokee Nation to really uh, reorganize and, and stand up governments and, and reconstitute our great democracies. Uh, but as you get into the 1980s, when Wilma Mankiller became a uh, political leader uh, taking uh, office, uh, I believe, in 1983, uh, it's a time when there was, I think, a sense of urgency. Urgency, uh, and restlessness among tribal leaders to push for more, uh, to make the government of the United States recognize that if self-determination means something, then sometimes the United States needs to get out of the way. Yes, they need to provide resources, but uh, tribes can govern themselves just fine. We were doing it just fine before European contact. So you had a lot of leaders pushing for that. Chief among them was Wilma Mankiller. And so her signing uh, those really significant agreements, including self-governance agreements, uh, I think was a powerful moment for all of Indian country. But there were a lot of tribal leaders at that time pushing for uh, that sort of progress. Uh, and I think that restlessness, that urgency uh, has stuck with leaders in the, the generation uh, that's come after because we continue to push for those things. But But look... The fact that we had such great uh, efforts made by Wilma Mankiller and others in the 1980s has put us in a position today, I, I think, that uh, is enviable in terms of the resources we have, the ability to govern ourselves. But we really owe it to those leaders that came before us. And, and Wilma Mankiller is, uh, is at the top. I, I know that there in Tahlequah, there's uh, uh, some 
I, I think there's some landmarks there. Just in Tahlequah and other Cherokee communities there in, in northeastern Oklahoma, what types of landmarks, what types of um, mementos or buildings, roads are, are there to honor Wilma Mankiller in addition to now this quarter? You know, that's a subject that's been on my mind a lot lately. Um, and I think Wilma Mankiller actually, uh, and I've heard this from uh, her contemporaries and her family, she wasn't particularly concerned about having things named after her. Yet we have a great health clinic in the uh, wonderful Cherokee community of Stillwell that's not only named after her, uh, but uh, we are almost, I think we're doubling the size of that clinic and we'll open that soon. So it it's both symbol and substance in terms of her effort, the symbol of Cherokees taking control of their own health care destiny, uh, and the substance of what goes on in there, quality health care delivered by the Cherokee people for the Cherokee people. I mean, that's what she wanted for us, and it's fitting that that, uh, that outpatient facility bears her name. But, you know, if you go around the reservation, there are not a great deal of, uh, in terms of monuments and, and, uh, and other ways to memorialize her. Part of us because I, she, I think, didn't want that. But I've been thinking a great deal about this lately, and I think it is high time that we look back at our leaders in the past, whether it's John Ross or whether it's Wilma Mankiller, and recognize that part of us embracing and teaching our own history is to commemorate uh, some of these uh, giants in Cherokee history. And, and, and Wilma Mankiller was a giant. So I think in the future, uh, when people come to Tahlequah, they will see more in terms of memorializing uh, her and her great leadership. But right now, uh, you know, if people want to see uh, her vision in action, Stillwell, Oklahoma, where that clinic is, I think she'd be very proud of the fact that we're doing that there, she probably would say, I, I don't care that my name's on it, but I'm so glad that what's happening inside is making a difference in people's lives. Chief Hoskin, thank you so much for that background. Anyone with a question or comment for the show, 1-800-996-2848. We'll be back right after this short break. Whether you like the hit 70s musical Grease or not, you might like a new indigenous takeoff called Bear Grease. It originated with a Canadian hip-hop duo and became a big draw in Calgary. U.S. audiences are getting a chance to see the production, and we'll hear more about it on the next Native America Calling. Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a one-of-a-kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes, healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com. Thanks for tuning in to Native America Calling today. I'm Sean Spruce. We're taking a look at the milestones of Wilma Mankiller's life and legacy. We'd also like to hear from you. What are your thoughts on her leadership? Join our conversation at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from Sunnyvale, California is Valerie Redhorse Mole. She is a filmmaker and director and producer of Mankiller. She's of Cherokee ancestry. Valerie, welcome back to the show. 
Oh, thank you so much. I'm honored to be here and just thrilled to be talking about this topic. So do you have your quarter rolls ordered yet? Well, I have a quarter that was given to me by the U.S. Mint on Friday night because we had the honor of screening uh, the Man Killer documentary by the U.S. Mint and the Women's History Museum at the MLK Library in Washington, D.C. to commemorate this fantastic event. And they uh, gave us each a brand new quarter with Wilma on it. So I do have that, yes. <laughs> oh, wow. well, you've got the VIP <laughs> version of the coin. And, and as I understand it, Valerie, you were involved with the coin minting project, right? I was not involved with the coin minting. I made the film uh, that they then screened Friday night uh, in in relationship with uh, the U.S. Mint uh, in Washington, D.C. to commemorate it. And they also at that time presented some of the first coins to her family uh, because her daughters were producers on the film. So it was a wonderful event that was a collaborative effort. Okay, thanks for the clarification. And I did get a chance to watch uh, the Man Killer documentary last night. Really moving. How much research went into producing the film? Wow. Um, well, it takes a team. I am the director and the producer, but you know we had a lot of people working on that. We covered her entire life. So this was a, a documentary for PBS, and it was a biography. It covered from when she was born. Uh, and when she went to San Francisco, all the way through her death. And um, so we had, I believe, uh, 750 pieces of different materials from film and video to photos we found in people's garages to Gloria Steinem materials. And it was uh, some from, you know, very early on, very scratchy, you know, film clips uh, to, you know, more recent. And it was just such an honor to be able to learn so much about her life and her knowledge and her legacy. And I just, you know, double down on what the Chief Hoskins was saying. Um, She was amazing and her legacy is just still so very relevant. What are some of the key milestones in Wilma Mankiller's life that, that you featured in the documentary? Well, I think the biggest theme for me that uh, is really a takeaway that I think we all can embrace is she had such challenges in her life from early on. You know, she was very, very ill. Uh, Her family was relocated from their just cherished homeland, Mankiller Flats. They were relocated on that really failed government program that sent them into San Francisco. Um, And yet, instead of looking at it, in a negative way, she um, overcame her health challenges and she used her time in San Francisco to actually get involved with the Black Panthers and with the ERA movement to really kind of hone her leadership skills around activism and grassroots organizing. And then she was able to come back and really bring everything she had learned uh, to become the leader she needed to be for the Cherokee Nation. And she came back and was really not accepted initially because no one knew her. And so she she started as a very humble servant leader, what she called it. And I just feel that when you look at all of her challenges and everything she overcame, that, that really shaped her into be, being this servant leader that cared about the people and cared about making change. As, as Chief Hawk, Hawk, Hoskins mentioned, you know, creating economic development that is just incredible today, um, and the healthcare system. 
Uh, but the lesson to take from it is that she really cared about others and it wasn't about her. And so her character, to me, is just what every political leader should aspire to. Valerie, do you have a favorite story or anecdote about Wilma Mankiller that you learned working on the film? I, I do. I mean, there's so many. She was just an amazing human being. And I think, you know, my, my favorite part of, of her was just her love for human beings. Like she loved everyone and she wanted to lift everyone up and she especially loved women and helped so many people. Um, but I think my favorite story that I try to embody uh, after learning from the people who worked with her was that one of her toughest decisions was to implement gaming. And as we all know, in Indian country, now it's second nature to us. But when it first started, it was not accepted with open arms. It was quite controversial. And she was in Oklahoma. It was the Bible Belt. And a lot of people did not want gaming to come into the Cherokee Nation. And she had a lot of opponents that would follow her like into grocery stores and on the street to say, what are you trying to do? And we're very, very angry at her. And she, her team tried to say, oh, leave her alone. You know, you don't get to talk to her. And she would say, no, no, no. I want to hear what they have to say. And so she listened to a 365-degree view. She wanted to hear what her opponents said. And then what she did is she said, you know, I still have to move forward with this for the economic development reasons. We need the finance, financial resources. But the fear was that it would cannibalize the money from the Cherokee people, that it would just be, you know, hurting themselves. So she placed it as far away as she could, the first one, um, on the far edge of the reservations, because she thought, I'm going to at least listen to their concerns. And I thought, the lesson of being able to listen to everyone is something that our leaders today do not do. And if we all could learn to listen more to everyone and then take that whole 365-degree view, I think we could make better decisions. Well, I like that story, and and I like how you tied it in with some of the current um, political climate that we're involved in today. And I also noticed at the end of your documentary, there's a quote from Wilma Mankiller. She said, I want to be remembered as the person who helped us restore faith in ourselves. Valerie, what do you think about that message, especially now in light of all the political turmoil and unrest we've experienced in this country over the last few years? I think it's essential. Um, you know, she talked about mental health and she talked about the whole person and that she didn't just think about economic development in a vacuum. And I think when we talk about faith in ourselves, you know, we're at a place where it's at a low. And she wanted to lift people up. And I think that has to be something that we all do. Uh, whether we're in political leadership or not, we're all human. And the lesson I take from her is, again, that love of, of humanity. And we have to restore it. And that should come first. It, it should supersede uh, political, uh, you know, identification and what party and anything else. You know, she didn't look at labels. She looked at the human being. She didn't care if you were Indian or non-Indian or, you know, Democrat, Republican. And I think we have to get back to that because with all of what we have going on in the world today, if we can just get back to the love for one another that she embodied, she didn't just talk about it, keep in mind, 
she showed it in her work and her life and her everyday of living. Valerie, where can listeners watch the documentary Man Killer? Um, it is a PBS documentary, but it is offered online at Gumroad. G U M R O A D is the um, online distributor. Well, thank you again, Valerie, for that glowing tribute to Wilma Mankiller. And let's bring another voice into the conversation now. Joining us from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania is Dr. Elena Roberts. She is a professor at the University of Pittsburgh and author of the book, I've Been Here All the While, Black Freedom on Native Land. She is a Chickasaw and Choctaw Freedman descendant. Dr. Roberts, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. Absolutely. You wrote a piece in High Country News on Wilma Mankiller and Friedman. Can you explain uh, some of the points you discuss? Of course. So I do want to start off by saying that, of course, Matt, Wilma Mankiller is someone that I have so much respect for. And that really is the spirit that the piece is written in because she's a figure that I think so many people need to know more about. But at the same time, as a Black Indian myself and someone who also researches Black Indian history, I think it's important that we look at Wilma Mankiller as a whole real person, as someone who had flaws, um, including the good and the bad in her life. And so my piece is really looking at the history um, of freedmen who are the former slaves of Cherokee and their descendants today, and how, unfortunately, Ross Swimmer and Wilma Mankiller really kind of opened the door to the disenfranchisement of those former slaves and their descendants um, that we really we're still dealing with until very recently under uh, Chief Hoskins' tenure that that really has changed and the Cherokee Nation has tried to really kind of invite those people back in. Um, but I do want to kind of give a sense of the history of this topic because I think there are many Cherokee and Native folks in general who aren't aware of this history of slaveholding. Um, so the Cherokees, as well as the other five tribes, uh, the Chickasaws, the Choctaws, the Creeks, and the Seminoles, all had members who adopted black chattel slavery in the 1700s. And this was originally kind of um, forced upon them, encouraged um, forcibly by white Europeans and Americans. Um, but there were tribal members who became interested in the kind of accumulation of capital and money that you could gain from holding slaves. And so this became an important part of these nations. And so the Cherokee Nation had laws that restricted slaves' ability to read and write, just like in the United States. There were Cherokees who fought in the Civil War to protect slavery, just like in the United States. And so after the Civil War, there was a treaty, the Treaty of 1866, where the Cherokee Nation agrees to adopt their former slaves as citizens. And so just like there are all these conversations in the United States about adopting and giving citizenship to black people, those same conversations happen in the Cherokee Nation, and the decision is made to adopt them as citizens. And so this is really the foundation for over 100 years until this decision is made by Ross Swimmer and Wilma Mankiller to change this. Okay, and tell us more about that decision and, and how it played out. Well, so right before the 1983 election, um, Ross Swimmer, as well as Mankiller, are advocating for the Tribal Council to modify the Tribal Code so that the right to vote is only open to Cherokees on the Dawes blood roll. I think probably most uh, people are familiar with the Dawes Roll, but the Dawes Roll in the five slaveholding nations uh, had two different kind of versions. So there's a blood roll for people um, who have Cherokee ancestry or native ancestry, and then there is the Freedman Roll, the role that is created for 
the former slaves um, of these nations. Now, many of these freedmen have Native ancestry, uh, but that is not documented in the 1800s, and so there's kind of no way for many of these people to prove that. And so when this decision is made in 1983, by Swimmer and Mankiller, this means that all of a sudden these people whose ancestors had voted in Cherokee elections for decades couldn't vote. And this really starts this kind of ball rolling down the hill um, where there are various efforts to then, for example, change the Constitution, to amend it so that this restricts citizenship only to Cherokees by blood. This happens under Principal Chief Chad Smith. Um, I think a lot, a lot more people know about maybe Chad Smith's part in this disenfranchisement rather than the beginning with Swimmer and Mankiller. But it's important to look at that as a lineage um, and a really kind of important beginning of talking about black Cherokees as if they are not Cherokee, as if they're not part of this nation, uh, which is not true. Mm-hmm. Did you receive any criticism for your article? Um, on Twitter, actually, there were more people saying, you know, I never knew this. I am glad to know this. Um, people who I think, as I said, didn't understand that it went all the way back to Mankiller in 1983, um, because I think people are more familiar with, you know, what's happened now, more recently, um, in the 2000s. Um, but the, the kind of history of black Cherokees and slavery in the Cherokee Nation is not told in a way that I think people would know about this. Um, and so I think that's why it's so important that under Chief Hoskin, there are now being efforts made to put this history in museums and in cultural centers where it should be, because this is part of Cherokee history. This is part of Native American history and really the broader history of colonization. Yeah, I, I think we would agree with that. And um, Elena, what would you like people to, to take away about Wilma Mankiller? You mentioned earlier you respect her a lot, but but there are some there are some issues there in, in her legacy. So what do you think people need to really understand? That when we, we meaning, you know, Native people, Black people, people of color, let's just say, um, when we hear about people like Abraham Lincoln being praised and we get frustrated, angry that the negative parts of their legacies are not explored, um, I would like us to think of Native leaders in the same way, uh, that they are important people uh, to their countries or to their uh, tribal nations, but that it's also important to think about them in the context. And so what does it mean that, you know, Mankiller is part of this decision, that she kind of continues in this same vein later on supporting um, Chief Smith's decision to um, really kind of pursue this constitutional amendment change? And only later on, when she's out of power, does she say, you know, maybe we should think about black Indians differently. Um, and she never kind of come, comes back and advocates for that change to be made in her own nation. And so really the point of my piece in High Country News and my book, I've been here all the while, and my work in general is to kind of talk to black and native people and black Indians and kind of get us to realize that we have so much history in common, that there are so many ways that we have all been hurt by settler colonialism and that really we would all benefit from knowing our history and from coming together and talking and really working together um, for our joint benefit. Now, you use uh, a Twitter to help uh, share some of your, your views, some of your studies. Can you talk about that a little bit and where people can learn more about some of these issues that you're describing on the show? Sure. Um, so my Twitter name is at all the while one. So it's 
um, a playoff of my book title. I've been here all the while. And I talk about Friedman on that Twitter account. I talk about tribal sovereignty. I talk about African-American history, um, all of these kinds of threads that really go together to make American history. But in a way, I think um, a lot of the mainstream, like TV books, um, hasn't picked up on yet. And so really kind of trying to encourage Americans of all races and ethnicities to look at the broader picture of our history, which is far more complicated. Elena, thank you again for coming on the show. And we felt it was really important on this day in which we're honoring and celebrating the legacy of Wilma Mankiller to have a balanced discussion and to bring you into the conversation and the issues that you talked about today. So thanks again. I appreciate all of your insights and as well as your research and the work that you've done. Wilma Mankiller served as Principal Chief of Cherokee Nation from 1985 to 1995. She passed away on April 6th, 2010, from causes related to pancreatic cancer. If you've got a question, if you've got a comment, if you'd like something to share, 1-800-996-2848. That is our number. Studio lines are open. We're waiting for your call. We'll be back right after this short break. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian Country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian Country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. There is still time to get in on our conversation about Wilma Mankiller. We're taking a look at some of her accomplishments and work as the Cherokee Nation's first female principal chief. Join us at 1-800-996-2848, 1-800-996-2848. Joining us now from Chicago, Illinois, is Mary Smith. She is the former Chief Executive of the Indian Health Service, and she is an enrolled member of the Cherokee Nation. Mary, welcome back to our show. Oh, thanks, Sean. I'm so glad to be here to talk about Wilma. Earlier, I asked Valerie if she was involved in the COIN Project, and I, I think you're the one that was involved in the COIN Project. Am I right? Yeah, I am also on the board of the National Women's History Museum, and the National Women's History Museum partnered with the U.S. Mint and the Smithsonian to help um, give selections, possible selections for who would be on the quarter. Um, I may have been even just, I'm sure I wasn't the only one, but I certainly suggested Wilma just as part of the process, but I'm sure many people did because she's so inspirational and um, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen makes the ultimate determinations, but I'm so thrilled that uh, she selected um, Wilma as on the quarter, and I was pleased to be with Valerie uh, on Friday night where the National Women's History Museum and the Mint, uh, we hosted an event uh, where uh, we showed Valerie's wonderful film, and, um, and the Mint actually did pass out some of those coveted quarters. <laughs> <laughs> the VIP coins we talked about, right? So tell us a little bit more. What was the mood like at that event? I think um, every, I mean, 
after seeing the film and Valerie, I encourage everyone to see the film, um, seeing about Wilma's life, uh, everybody, you, you, you can't help but walk away to, and be inspired. And the thing that I've seen the film several times and I see new things every time I see it, but, and I did know Wilma too, but I feel that the things she did in her life are even more relevant now. Uh, she really was um, an activist at heart. And I think about the issues facing our country now and the young people who are activists and the marches going on. And Wilma, that's, that's how she got her start, her political start. Um, when she was in San Francisco, uh, Valerie mentioned uh, working with the Black Panthers, but she had met Dolores Huerta, Cesar Chavez, uh, Gloria Steinem was a dear, dear friend of hers. And, and I think she still inspires uh, generations of young people today. I asked um, Valerie, you know, about any stories, because you and, you and Wilma were friends. So any specific stories or anecdotes that you want to share from time spent with Wilma? Um, well, I guess I'll share one that, that I wasn't part of, but that really, the piece of the film that really touched me, I think, the most, and then I can share just a brief story about Wilma and myself. But um, in the film, uh, when she was originally asked to run for political office, that was not what she was aspiring to do necessarily. So she asked her, um, who became her husband, Charlie Soap, should I, should I do this? Should I run for office? And she was very conflicted. And during that time, she was working for the Cherokee Nation, doing economic development work, and she was visiting people, and Valerie mentioned this too. She really, I think the key to Wilma's leadership was that she did listen and she included everyone and she was going around with Charlie talking to people and she visited this man who had um, I think a son or a grandson who was disabled and this man himself was older um, and not very spry himself and they were talking and in the middle of the conversation um, the man just kind of silently got up and he picked up his uh, young relative um, and put him on his back because the boy could, he was probably like in his teens, but he could not walk and carried him out to an outhouse because they didn't have running water and then carried him back in and then started the conversation as if there had been no interruption. And when Charlie and she left and were in the car driving away, she said, I need to run for office because I can do something about this. And that was like one of the catalysts for her uh, choosing to be a political leader. But mm. um, I knew Wilma, um, you know, the other aspect to Wilma, she certainly really transformed, I think, the Cherokee Nation and uh, they're on the road to self-determination. Uh, Chief Hoskins talked about the health care and other things there. But um, where I first met her was she actually also had a national platform. She um, was a national political leader. And she spent time in Washington. President Clinton gave her the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And she was a national um, advocate for women. And she and Gloria Steinem were the best of friends. 
And there's a famous quote from Gloria that's also in the film, but Gloria repeats it all the time. She says, in a just world, Wilma would have been president of the United States. And I know that she was constantly working to advocate for the rights of women and for Native people to have their voices, not just in their communities, which is so very important, but nationally, so that uh, they will be have a seat at the table to uh, influence the trajectory of our nation. Because if you look back at things, the horrors and, and things that have happened to Native people, uh, the one common thread of that is they did not have a seat at a table. They did not have a voice. And Wilmo really wanted to do that. And so I, um, I worked in the Clinton White House, and I've worked on a number of political campaigns and worked with her on some of those presidential campaigns and invited her to come to events. And she came and um, was just an inspiration for um, still generations of uh, particularly young women, I think. Mary, earlier I asked Chief Hoskin um, why he thought that in the more than 25 years since she last held the position of principal chief, there haven't been any other women to hold that role. Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, Wilma, um, you know, unfortunately, um, and I'm sure all the women on this call have experienced it too, and women listening, um, there still are a lot of forces um, holding women back. The thing about Wilma, though, is she never let it stop her. Um, and I think, unfortunately, things there's been a lot of advancements for women, but there's still a lot of barriers. You see that, and you name name an area a profession, and you will see that. I mean, we still have not had a woman president of the United States, and most other countries have. And um, uh, Wilma said that when she first ran for office, she actually ran um, with uh, Ross Swimmer, who's a Republican, and she was a staunch Democrat. She thought that the backlash she would receive from um, the tribal members was uh, her political affiliation. And she said that the biggest pushback she got was for being a woman. And she said that uh, you know, and I'm I'm not going to get the quote exactly right, but she said something to the effect that, um, you know, people who um, diminish women are fools, and she never argues with a fool, and she always just plowed forward and um, didn't let it stop her. Mm. Well, listeners, still time to get a call in, 1-800-996-288. We're speaking with Mary Smith, a colleague and friend of the late Principal Chief Wilma Mankiller. Mary, tell us more about uh, Wilma's accomplishments in the area of healthcare. Yeah, I had the honor of being um, head of the Indian Health Service um, at the end of the Obama administration. And um, Wilma really transformed the health system for the Cherokee Nation. Um, I think that Cherokee Nation's health system now is one of the largest tribally run health systems. And Chief Hoskins alluded to this, that, um, and this wasn't really done at the time. This was at the beginnings of when tribes took over from the federal government running their own health systems. And so the large hospital there that was recently expanded um, on the Cherokee Nation, the Hastings Hospital, um, 
was turned over from uh, the federal government, the Indian Health Service, to the Cherokee Nation. And now um, it is a very large, very sophisticated health system. And Wilma really set it on that path and really expanded services, including ambulatory services and eye services. And we've mentioned um, that one clinic, the Wilma Man Killer Outpatient Clinic, is named after her. And I, um, I know she definitely inspired me because my grandmother was Cherokee and grew up in Oklahoma, and that's a large reason why I uh, decided uh, that I would take the position of heading the Indian Health Service. My grandmother grew up in a family with 16 kids and only uh, 10 of whom lived above the age of three because of health care. And you can imagine, um, you know, the impact that Wilma's had by really empowering the tribe and allowing them to run their own health system. Mm. Well, I believe in the documentary Man Killer, it described the Cherokee Nation healthcare system as, I think it's, is it the largest healthcare system in Native America? Is that correct? I, I believe that's true still. Yeah, it is very large um, and has multiple clinics. It's basically a, a regional healthcare system, a large regional healthcare system, and um, it's an amazing I visited there when I was head of the Indian Health Service and they were in the process of expanding the hospital which has now been expanded and they offer almost any practice that you can imagine so it it really serves the people and the area um, tremendously Mary earlier I when talking with Chief Hoskin we talked about how not only was Woman Mankiller such a, a pivotal leader, but her the era in which she was a tribal leader was very important. Self-determination, self-governance, contracted services. Could you talk a little bit about how historic these efforts were with regard to healthcare? Because it coincided, these efforts, these projects, they coincided this this time of of, of uncertainty and of questions about how tribes should move forward with self-determination, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Indian Self-Determination Act was passed earlier, and um, I think it, it uh, really didn't realize its start to realize its full potential to the era that Wilma lived in because it was during that time, um, and I think she helped advocate for amendments to the Indian Self-Determination Act that would allow more flexibility for tribes to take over their health systems from the Indian Health Service, like Hastings Hospital used to be an Indian Health Service hospital, uh, but now it's run by the tribe, and many, many tribes do that now, but to think about... Um, you know, how that process happened and to allow tribes to run their own program. She really was part of that era that really uh, expanded that tremendously and really set the course for the situation we have now where um, I think um, uh, probably about 60 or 70 percent of tribes are now running their own health systems. And to think Wilma was at the inception of that. Right. And, and it sounds like Woman Mankiller was key to setting the priority on health care that persists today, not just there at Cherokee Nation, but with so many tribes all across Native America. Mary, you worked on some presidential campaigns with Wilma Mankiller as well. Can you talk about that experience? 
Yeah, I remember um, one particularly. I, I worked on the John Kerry campaign in 2004, and even though Wilma uh, obviously had many, many health challenges, she was always engaged. I mean, she was always thinking about helping other people and helping give women and Native people voices. And so she uh, was um, providing um, guidance to people on the campaign, and I was doing uh, actually Native American outreach on that campaign to try to engage uh, Native American people around the country, and she was a big help to me and even came to some events that, that I helped organize and was always just so inspirational um, uh, during that time and, and really pragmatic, too, because the one thing about Wilma, too, is not only did she listen, but she provided solutions. And there's actually a little clip in the film, which I can appreciate because I also know Bill Clinton. I worked in the Clinton White House. And Bill Clinton, at his heart, is a policy wonk. And I think that Wilma was, too, because I think you can see the look on his face. She's testifying, talking about some uh, solutions, some bonds and other things that would really give economic development opportunities to the Cherokee Nation and other Indian tribes. And I think Bill Clinton has this little glint of surprise on his face because that is exactly the type of thing that he would do. And I think that's why he so appreciated her and then gave her the presidential medal because she, she was a policy wonk as well. <laughs> I noticed, I noticed that part in the documentary as well. And I, we're going to have to wrap up the show here in just a minute, but I, I want to share one more quote from the man killer documentary. Woman man killer once said, my own role here, I think, is just to have been here for a tiny, tiny period of time in the, total, in the totality of history. And I guess I don't think I leave any great legacy. I hope that when I leave, it will just be said that I did what I could. Mary, I want to give you the last word. What are your thoughts on that quote well, from Wilma Mackiller? Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I, I guess I can tell a little personal story. Um, in the spring of 2010, um, word had gotten out that Wilma was very critically ill um, as a result of her cancer. And so I reached out to her um, about a month before she ended up passing. And um, I don't think she had enough strength to respond to probably all the emails and calls she was getting. But uh, her family responded on her behalf. And I still save that email today. And part of the message was the best way to honor Wilma's life and work is to help other people as she has done most of her life. So I think that's um, a fitting tribute to her and a way that even those of us still here can honor Wilma's life and legacy. Absolutely. Well, thanks to all our guests for an informative discussion on the life of Wilma Mankiller. Join us tomorrow for a show on the First Nations play Bear Grease, an indigenized take on the classic 70s musical and movie Grease. I'm Sean Spruce. Thanks for listening. Support by the Facundo Valdez School of Social Work at Highlands University, now offering the opportunity to earn a culturally relevant, clinical, Master of Social Work degree without leaving your own community. This online MSW degree focuses on a small, supportive model with a clinical concentration. Students in rural areas, tribal communities, and or who live far from campus are given preference. Application can be made in three easy steps. More info and application at online.nmhu.edu.
Hey, first baby, don't know where to start? CMS programs cover prenatal services. Enroll today. Contact your local Indian health care provider for more information. Visit healthcare.gov or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Elakwa. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.